Hey, thanks for tuning in to the latest sermon. We pray that it challenges you, blesses you, and ultimately that it would stir your heart's affection for Jesus. Enjoy. Well, thank you for joining with us uh, this morning here and online. This morning, we're going to continue our series in Philippians. Pastor Brent opened us last week with chapter one. We're going to move into chapter two this week. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn there right now to Philippians chapter two. That's where we'll find ourselves this morning. As you're turning there, I want to share with you uh, this, this June, this past June, I had the opportunity along uh, with Wendy Ellerby to go and to visit with one of our global partners that we have here as a, as a church down in the town of San Raimundo, Guatemala. And uh, Wendy and I had the opportunity to go down and to visit with Pastor Victor and the church and to see what was happening there and within the school. For those that don't know, we've had a partnership with this current church uh, for about 14 years. Many of you have been part of that partnership, both financially, through prayer. Many of you have been part of teams that have traveled down to be part of the work that has taken place. Over the years, our main project has been working on a school that is open, that is running, that serves many students within the town. Uh, But we have also done many other things. We've been part of building homes, uh, bus shelters, We've distributed food within the community. We've run VBS programs. We participated in weddings and birthdays and child dedications with the people there. And if you've ever been, you will know that aside from the work that's being done, the greatest value that we have is the relationships that we share with the people in San Raimundo. It's pretty incredible when you find yourself down there, the unity that you see that exists between our church and their church. Even though we're from different countries, we speak different languages, we live in very different parts of the world, different lives, we are still very deeply connected. And it's incredible to me how a common goal or a common idea, a common person can bring together such different people into a place of unity. In this case, the person of Jesus and the desire to make him known in the town of San Raimundo, Guatemala, has brought us together into close unity with Pastor Victor, who's uh, pictured in the biggest picture there, and the church within San Raimundo. And I believe it's this kind of unity that Jesus desires for his church. As we're going to read about in our text today in the Philippians chapter 2, we're going to see how Paul challenges us as disciples to live in this kind of unity and how important unity within the church is and not only the importance of it, but how we can do it. And so if you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, the words will be on the screen. And if you would like a Bible... Let us know, and we would love to provide one for you. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, 
not looking to your own interests, but, to, uh, but, to, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul begins our passage today in chapter 2 with four if statements. He says, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there is any comfort in love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any compassion and tenderness... Paul is essentially offering encouragement to the church in Philippi. And although we see the word if here, Paul is actually not asking the church if these things exist. He is making a statement that says he knows that they do. Instead of using that word if there, we can actually translate it as reading since. So the passage could read this. Since there is consolation in Christ... Since there is comfort in love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is compassion and tenderness. Good things are happening in the church of Philippi, and Paul desires to encourage the believers. But he also seems to be aware of disunity within the church. And knowing how important unity is to the person of Jesus, Paul wants to make an appeal to the believers to be unified. Yet he ensures that the call that he makes to unity is preceded by hope and love. That's why he says, since those things exist. In verse 2, four times Paul uses phrases that denote unity. He uses the words, same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now Paul's actually used these phrases already in chapter 1, and he will use them again throughout the book of Philippians. And this is because he realizes the vital importance of unity. He knows that unity among believers is not just some peripheral issue or merely an added bonus to the Christian life, but that it is essential for both the Christian's growth, but also for the witness of the church to a watching world. Paul gives the important reason for unity in verse 10 when he writes these words. He says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The church being a place of compassion, of fellowship, of comfort, of tenderheartedness, these are good things. However, it is the unified church that Jesus will be able to use to make himself known. 
And so in this sense, being a Christian is not solely about having relationship with God, but it is also about having relationship with other people within the church. Simply put, it's not about me. It's about we. It's not about you. It's not about me as the individual, but it is about the we as a church. And that's why in John chapter 17, verse 11, we read about Jesus praying that as believers, we would be unified, that we would be one. That's his prayer before he goes to the cross. Unity is vital to the world encountering the person of Jesus. See, the world will encounter the life person of Jesus when the church moves in unity. So how do we see this lived out when we are a diverse, extended family representing different cultures and different traditions? As the church, we are to be an interconnected group of people. And we are connected for a reason, for our love of God. We're connected because we share the same heavenly father and we together are to be his people. Living in unity does not mean losing our personalities and just becoming mindless clones with one another, but it means embracing everything that is unique about us while pursuing, uni- while pursuing God in unity together. D.A. Carson in his book, Love in the Hard Places, wrote this. He says, the church is made up of natural enemies, but what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common assents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by the person of Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for the sake of of Christ. Unity can't just be about the body coming together for the sake of coming together. The body needs to be unified because it has Jesus at the center. So let me ask you, let me ask us together as a church, are we living in unity? Or are we letting issues become a barrier to both Christ for ourselves as well as others. If so, we need to work it out because the world is watching and it is our responsibility to show them the person of Jesus. The reality is a fragmented church cannot and will not experience change or bring change to the world. And so Paul gives us some guidance in the verses that follow on how it is that we can pursue this unity within the church. The place that he begins first is a move from selfish ambition to putting others ahead of yourself. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul is simply saying that unity requires us to prioritize serving God and others ahead of ourselves. Now, the world's not so good at helping us pursue selflessness. In actuality, selfishness and self-idolization are often encouraged and praised. 
Selfish ambition can be described in terms of solely focusing on your own needs, your own desires, your own wants and dreams. And the world wants us to keep our lives in selfie mode, only concerned with our own well-being, with our own pursuits. We like it when we're recognized, when we're acknowledged for doing good. We like it when people take notice. We're attracted to the jobs and tasks that are big, important, significant, get us noticed, seen, or praised. But the more that we think about ourselves, the less we think of others, and the more self-centered we become. And really, this is how the serpent tempted Adam and Eve. He had them exalt themselves above God by leading them to follow their own desires. Selfish ambition has us pursue our own glory, to self-exalt. And it creates within us a desire to elevate ourselves above God to the point that we stop pursuing the Lord because we find ourselves being fully satisfied apart from him. This is humanity's deepest problem. We think equality with God is both our right and our responsibility. Being our own king, our own queen sits well with us. Surely we should have this. Reigning over other people is enticing to us. Surely we should do this. But a reality check. You are not God. This is at the center of why Christ came, to undo disorder and destruction that results from humans play-acting as God. In verse 5, Paul writes these words. He says, Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That term robbery means to grasp or to clutch. The idea here is that Jesus did not try to grab, to clutch, to selfishly hold on to the rights, the honors, the privileges of his deity. But during his incarnation, he willingly laid them aside. Look at how Paul describes Jesus in our text. Jesus is the king, the one true king, the only king. We are not. He reigns from the place of highest honor. We do not. His name is above all others. Ours is not. He deserves the worship and the adoration of all that exists. We do not. He is Lord. We are not. Even as King and Lord, Jesus chose to selflessly put others ahead of himself. We could say that he embodied a kingdom mentality over a me mentality. Here's what I mean by that. The way that you think about your ambitions has a lot to do with where your heart and your focus lie. Another way of putting this would be that as disciples, we are called to be producers and not consumers. A me mentality is very consumeristic. Consumers are simply spectators that look to consume in order to meet their own needs. It might sound something like this. I sure hope I get a good parking spot when I pull into church this morning. 
no one better be in my seat. (laughs) Hopefully the worship songs are ones that I enjoy this morning, that I want to sing. Please, can the service be done within an hour? I really have things to do. (laughs) Not likely. (laughs) And it's not even Brenta Randall preaching, it's me. (laughs) Someone better greet me this morning. Or maybe you're on the opposite end. I hope no one does greet me this morning. Consumers come to sit, and to get, often criticizing along the way because they're only concerned with themselves. For many of us, the church and often what it offers is simply something that we consume. Kingdom mentality on the other side is a producer mentality. Producers are participants in advancing the kingdom They see themselves as contributors to what the church is, to what the church is doing, seeking to serve God and others along the way. They live in such a way that they choose to give and not to take. When we're spiritual contributors, we're giving our time, our energy, our ability, even our finances as a cause that is far, to a cause that is far greater than ourselves. A kingdom mentality is really defined by one simple word, Love. Love is the opposite of selflessness, selfishness, as it is focused on considering and serving others. And this is what Paul is saying when he tells us to think of the interests of others ahead of our own. He's saying, love those around you. In fact, this command is given right before Jesus gives that prayer for unity that we highlighted from John 17. In chapter 15 of John, verses 12 and 13, he says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. I think Martin Luther captured this idea well and helps us think about how to do this practically when he reflected on the parable of the Good Sermon or Good Samaritan. He says, I imagine the first question the priest or the Levite when they came upon the man who was beaten upon the side of the road was if I stop and help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That to me is a question that tears down walls, builds bridges, can end stigma and bring life. We naturally want to think of ourselves first, our needs, our wants, but we seldom talk about what will happen around me to my neighbors, to my friends, to my family, to the needy, to the less fortunate, to the down and out, if I only think about myself. As followers of Jesus, the value and importance of serving others is discovered when we become spiritual producers not consumers. Nothing binds and brings unity as, quick, as quickly or deeply as shared ministry. We have to stop hanging our hats on a half-truth that salvation is the finish line for us as Christians. 
We have to start understanding the calling to establish the kingdom in the world here and now. If we don't, those in our churches, in our communities, and in our homes will be comfortable being consumers instead of being contributors. See, there's critical work to be done in reaching others with the gospel. But it requires that all of us would be producers within the kingdom, not consumers. Don't simply be a vessel looking to be filled, but be a vessel serving and loving others for the kingdom. This coming fall, as I move into a bit of a different role, I have the opportunity of leaning into this and really helping to call us as a church to being producers. And it would be my heart and my passion, my desire to work alongside us as a church to help each of you discover gifting and talents and passions, and then connecting them to needs within our church and our community and within our world, so that we can become a place of unified producers. And so if you're looking to move from that position of consuming to producing, connect with me. I'd love to talk with you more about what that could look like for you. Because as we devote ourselves to loving God and loving our neighbors, we will inevitably turn our attention from ourselves to others. We'll move from selfish ambition to serving and loving those around us. The second distinctive of unity that Paul highlights is, do not be conceited, but rather in humility count yourselves, count others more significant than yourself. Now this word conceit is often associated with envy, with jealousy, with anger, and I'm sure many of us have now said, well, clearly that's not me. But before we write ourselves off and say, I'm not conceited, let me ask a few questions to help us identify if there might be conceit within our heart. Am I competing for the approval or attention of others? Do I find it difficult to celebrate the success of others? Do I think I am superior to others? Am I concerned with my own needs or with the needs of others. Likely one of those in some way pings in our life. And the danger with conceit is that when unchecked, it becomes pride. Conceited people are those who fail, though, to see their own brokenness and need for the grace of God in their own life. See, when conceit seeps its way into our hearts, we can begin to view others as less than. We see their sin and their shortcomings, and if we're not careful, we begin to judge. How could that person do that? I can't believe they think it's okay to wear that. Those parents really have no control over their kids. I could show them a thing or two. The way they are living... I'm surprised they've even stepped foot into the church. Why isn't that person dating? Why aren't they married? Why don't they have kids? They're how old and they're still living at home? I will never deal with addiction like that person does. 
From silent conversations within our head to loud statements of disapproval of those around us, the danger is we slip into judgmental pride. And in doing this, we often see ourselves as an arbitrator who is able to decide who deserves what. And in this sense, we're putting ourselves on the throne instead of allowing God to be God. The same reminder, you are not God. To live humbly is to see yourself rightly in light of who God is. It is understanding where we fall short and God does not. It's understanding that I need God's grace in my life just as much as anyone else. Romans 3.23 states that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone falls short of this glorious standard. All of us. But do we really believe that truth? We can say it, but do we believe it? Or do we consider ourselves apart from everyone else? Do we live in a way that says, everyone else has sinned and they need forgiveness, but I'm different. I'm better. Often we're quick to dissociate ourselves from who we view to be the worst of sinners. We think I'm nothing like that person. I don't struggle with addiction. I'm not a compulsive liar. I'm not committing crimes. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I'm not abusive. See, conceit seeks to elevate us above others. But as scripture said, God pours contempt on our pride. And he does that through the reminder that we have all fallen short. We all make mistakes. We all sin. It is a level playing field. And when we understand this truth, it will revolutionize our interactions with other people. We no longer see ourselves as being elevated above, able to judge. Instead, we understand that we are all poor, all broken in need of a savior. None of us are qualified, but are lowly in need of God's mercy. To live selflessly and humbly, humbly though, Paul points us to Jesus as our example. These verses are a great picture of what Jesus did for us. Verses three through four, Paul tells us that we then are to have the same mind of Christ. The unity that Paul is calling us to is directly linked to the life of Jesus. The starting point, once again, the reminder here as Jesus is our example, is that he needs to be the starting point. The New Testament is clear. It says if we want to know how to live a life that is pleasing to God, then Jesus Christ is the person that we must model. 1 John 2.6 says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. As a disciple, you're accepting this invitation to live a life that is distinct from those around you. And God's plan and design for us is that we would take on an entirely new way of living. By getting to know who he is and who we are because of that. We do that by looking at the person of Jesus 
as our example. N.T. Wright puts these words. He says, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're an actual part of the drama, which has him as the central character. Look to Jesus. Do you want to do God's will? Do you want to live selflessly? Do you want to live humbly? Do you want to pursue and live in unity? Well, then look to Jesus and remember that your story is a lived expression of the person of Jesus. The last reminder is Jesus is our enabler. This can't be done on our own power. And this is why verse 13 of our text is so important when it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I invite our worship team up now. Christ is not just our example as we strive for humility, but he is in fact our enabler. He will enable us to dwell with others in humility and unity through the power of the spirit, which he mentions in verse one. He says, we have participation in the spirit. The Greek word for participation here is koinonia, and it means fellowship, something shared. Believers are joined through our faith in Christ by the spirit of Christ. The same spirit that dwells in me, that dwells in, that it dwells in you. And we have this unbreakable bond. Hence, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit should motivate and allow us to be one. In Jesus, we have this motivation and power to act what is within us. So you are full of good works. Jesus has placed those within you. But don't let it stay within. Let it move out of you. Do the work that God has called you to. Even though your parents probably often said this, not to do this, act out. (laughs) Don't hold it in, act out. Let it come out of you. Because humility is not saying, I can't. Humility is saying, God can through me. That's what true humility is, letting God's power work in your life. Our unity with God is completely dependent on the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. The moment we put our faith in him and accept Jesus' work on the cross, we are grafted into relationship with a life-giving vine and the spirit takes up residence in you. When we're doing what we're designed to do, loving one another sacrificially, it glorifies God and it shows the world who Jesus is. Putting aside our preferences for the sake of unity, not so easy. But that's why we need Jesus and the power of the Spirit in our lives. With Jesus as our example, and with the Spirit as our enabler within us, church, we can live in unity, moving in a way that will bring change, that will bring hope, 
that will bring life to a world that so desperately needs it. And I invite you to join with us as we close our time.